TL Talk Radio, Season 4, Episode 6. Welcome to Season 4, Episode 6 of TL Talk Radio, a podcast with Lynn Funyhatton and Randy Ziganfus, where our goal is to engage you in learning, motivate you to share your work, and inspire you to lead for the change we need in schools for the digital age. I'm Randy Ziganfus. And I'm Lynn Funyhatton. Good morning, Randy. Good morning, Lynn. So really excited today. Um, we're speaking with Michael Toth, founder, chief executive officer, and chief learning officer of Learning Sciences International. Formerly the president of the National Center for the Profession of Teaching, a university faculty member, and director of research and development grants, Mr. Toth transformed his university research and development team into a company that is focused on leadership, teacher professional growth, and instructional effectiveness correlated to student achievement gains. Mr. Toth is actively involved in research and development, gives public presentations, and advises education leaders on issues of leadership and teacher effectiveness, school improvement, and professional development systems. He's the author of Who've Moved My Standards, Joyful Teaching in an Age of Change, and co-author with Robert Marzano and Carla Moore of Essentials for Standards-Driven Classrooms, Practical Instructional Model for Every Student to Achieve Rigor. Welcome to our show, Michael. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we're looking forward to talking about who moved my standards. So uh, to, to kick the conversation off, uh, tell us a little bit about this parable and what inspired you uh, to put this together. Well, what inspired me is uh, part of our Center for Applied Research at Learning Sciences. Uh, we have a number of research partners, schools. We go out, we visit schools across the country. And what I've noticed in visiting many, 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 many classrooms is teachers working themselves to exhaustion. In fact, teacher fatigue and burnout is a major issue. And the same is true for principals. What we're seeing is this, the reform after reform of high accountability seems to be coming down and resting on the shoulder of the classroom teacher, but not a lot in the way of support. Mm -hmm. And so as we're looking at this, it really touched a chord with myself. And I wanted to create a parable that talked about how teachers can not work as hard and actually get higher student achievement by engaging students in a group and team processes with 21st century teaching and learning. So in doing that, probably the hardest thing is that teachers have to abandon practices that they feel have been working for them largely direct instruction. And so that was the concept of the parable. The parable kind of walks um, teachers through this process that the world changed. And when the world changed, teaching that was working for us doesn't work as well with today's kids. And so teachers feel like they have to teach harder, engage more. And that's not ending unless we change our practices. And that's kind of the heart of the parable. Yeah, and I think it's a great on-ramp uh, and certainly a, a very easily digestible uh, text that one can read in a short period of time that really helps frame this idea of the need for change. And also from a leadership perspective, what are some of the things that we as leaders need to do differently to be able to provide the support so that these changes can occur? Yeah, just one more point about that, kind of with the title, Who Moved My Standards, although it's not technically a standards book. 
we're just finding that with the standards movement, which are uh, dramatically more rigorous than our former standards, the more people get into them and the testing that has come with them, the state assessments are much harder. Teachers are just trying to teach harder to get their kids to these standards and really there is a better way. And that reform really starts with an individual teacher willing to change their practice. So you mentioned and Randy followed up that we're certainly facing many changes. And for one of us, most of the, one of the most exciting challenges ahead is helping to shift our stakeholders' mindsets um, to realize our vision. We've identified a profile of a graduate um, with knowledge, skills, and dispositions we want to see our students have when they graduate. And as a result of that shift, we have to reshape our learning spaces and our beliefs about learning. How can this story help our teachers and teachers like ours thrive in this time of change? I think you really hit the essential question, and that is, what is our mental model or vision for teaching? And what, whenever I'm doing keynotes around this topic, I always make sure I say that this is not the teacher's fault. They, when they experienced K-12 education, they were largely lectured at or direct instruction from their teachers. Mm-hmm. When they went to college, the professors lectured to them. When they came into the profession, largely their uh, mentor teachers uh, modeled for them how to control a classroom through direct instruction or lecture, mm-hmm. or teacher-centered instruction. So that is our, our mental model, um, and it served its purpose for a time, but like I said, the world's changed. Interestingly, the new academic standards uh, not only are more rigorous, they're actually meant to be applied. If you look at the speaking listening standards uh, in group and teamwork. Mm-hmm. Uh, in other words, you can't lecture kids no matter how hard you try to critical thinking. It, students have to experience it. Therefore, we have to significantly change our classroom environment. In our research center, we have one of the largest databases in the country of teacher practice. We have 2.1 million data points streaming each year from across the country on various strategies teachers are using. As we analyze that with our researchers, what we found is that that we've basically created a national profile of teaching practice. We're seeing that's very heavily lecture traditional direct instruction, and though it has tweaked in the last five years that we've been measuring it, it hasn't substantively changed. And I believe that's because the professional development systems, the professional learning communities, the way we coach teachers is largely around our mental model of teaching, which is a teacher in front of the classroom delivering a lesson. And that vision has to change. So in changing, teaching practices you mentioned direct instruction and I'm just sort of processing that because I think that's one of the one of the challenges that that uh, many educational leaders face is how do you uh, shift that idea that learning isn't uh, transferring knowledge from one person to another that you like you mentioned it's this act of doing and uh, one of the things that we've been talking a lot in our district about is this idea of agency and agency not only on the part of the learner in the classroom but owning more of that responsibility for learning but also the teacher too like how as leaders do we give teachers the agency uh around their own professional learning around um, the way that they design instruction so how how do we help 
uh, build this idea of agency throughout the organization, not only in our teachers, but also in our students as well, this ownership of learning. Well, we study this in our Applied Research Center, and uh, we work directly in the field. All of our research is actually done in classrooms with real teachers in front of real students. And what we've noticed is um, that the, there's a precursor to this change. In other words, teachers can't just simply step back and release control to kids. Mm -hmm. Uh, devolves into chaos, and that's part of what's holding them back from attempting these strategies. Uh, what we, we found is that the first thing they have to do is ignite student ownership. Until students co-own their learning with teachers, uh, the rest doesn't really seem to matter that much. It's still the teacher working too hard with predominantly passive students that are less cognitively engaged and more ritualistically engaged. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So uh, that process requires a release of autonomy and some very specific things. It requires a shared learning target that's based off of a component of the standard being instructed. It involves creating a group task where students not only get a small amount of direct instruction around the necessary scaffolding on the content, but then immediately transition to applying that content, uh, questioning their own knowledge as they're bringing new knowledge in. So what we're seeing is the students are elaborating and processing in groups, challenging each other's thinking with respectful dialogue, pushing on each other's thinking as they do that, we're starting to see classroom practice trend from retrieval and comprehension levels of taxonomy and thinking to analysis and knowledge utilization levels. And that's when we see cognitive engagement just explode. To do that, the teacher literally has to plan the lesson differently, the plan release task to kids where they are engaged, they have to have structures and roles. Um, not our old ways we were thinking about this, in fact, when we walk classrooms, we typically don't see what we would classify as group work. Mm -hmm. What we see are students sitting together, <laughs> independent tasks. Mm -hmm. The chairs are grouped, mm -hmm. but the students actually are not. Um, they may or may not be able to talk to each other during those independent tasks. If you see elementary schools, you'll see centers quite a bit. Almost every center has students doing independent work, they're really not working collaboratively. Therefore, this, this huge benefit of learning from each other, peers mentoring each other, pushing on each other's thinking isn't realized, leaving all that burden to the classroom teacher to try to do. And by sharing classroom responsibility with students, we're finding when that happens and that flips in a classroom, and that's a bit of a process that principals and teacher communities have to support each other to achieve. That's your agency question. Mm -hmm. When that happens, we're just seeing learning ignite, student achievement take off, and teachers to a person tell us that teaching's become more enjoyable, less burdensome. It's still tiring. It's still hard. Mm -hmm. But it's a good tired at the end of the day, not a fatigue tired. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've, we've found that in a lot of our conversations and work here, this idea of agency is really at the core of everything. And we've been thinking about how do we 
release that. And I think part of it is how do you define the parameters of that too? And it's not just total ownership on the part of the learner too, but it's this idea of co-creating uh, those opportunities. And I think that you've given us some things to think about in terms of how do we scaffold that and get to that, get to that point. Co-creating is a very important point because that helps them. People that are involved in the creating process tend to own that mm -hmm. at the end. And the more students understand what their learning objectives are and are involved in having input on those, the more likely they are to really own it and actually work to that end. So certainly making the shift with, and the mindset shift and the understanding of the content and the approach and um, shifting away from the direct instruction and more towards the co-creation is going to require some first and second order change. And how can we as leaders support that, support our teachers and our other leaders in this shift? Well, from our experience, um, and let's just define first order change, which is pretty much continuous improvement of the current mental model of teaching. And that's largely what we see all the professional development and supervision and classroom observation processes around or just tweaking that current model, not radically transforming. Mm -hmm. So how do you bring in a model that radically transforms? One of those is to not do a school-wide initiative right away. Start with volunteer teachers that want to and are willing to do the work to take this risk. Help them progress and support them heavily to this concept of uh, a demonstration classroom. And what you're going to be looking for, there are key markers when we do this, and we do this process all over, called a coalition of the willing, uh, using John Carter's uh, change process to empower a, a broad-based action for change eventually reaching all corners of the school. You have to get some people to do this first because people, uh, teachers need a mental model what it looks like. So we've created a process called demonstration schools for rigor. And this is what we do. We have certain volunteer teachers initially in the coalition of the willing start learning these practices. Our markers go from typically average teaching um, is going to be 80 to 90% classified as direct instruction or independent practice. Remember, chair grouping or centers will not be considered group work under mm -hmm. this. They have to have a group task. They have to have roles and structures. Um, so what the first move we want to see is to where there's 50% rigorous student group work in a lesson. So how do you move that needle that far? Because once you do that, your classroom culture just totally changes. The routines are different, the way teachers plan lessons are different, the way they manage the classroom's different, and they really have no choice but to share self-regulation, get kids to self-regulate in the environment with these increased responsibilities. And what we're finding is kids, even students from generational poverty, just flourish in that environment. We have never had a single classroom lose control in the many, many schools across the mm -hmm. country. Uh, once that pops and the kids become big advocates, they start telling other kids, teachers want to know, well, how are you getting these amazing student growth gains? 
and then you start instructional rounds, let other teachers see, bring them in, and use it as a learning laboratory within the school. So certainly a lot of um, items there to think about, supporting teachers, creating sort of um, that risk-taking environment, supporting those teachers in that risk-taking environment, being really clear about what you're looking for and designing some of the some of the ideas, whether it's um, articulating clearly what collaboration looks like and what are some of the elements of collaboration that you would want teachers to try and reflect upon um, to help promote that real systemic change long term. Yeah. One of the things that I'm, I'm working on now is just an analysis of professional learning communities. And what our audit has shown us is that most of the Marine Force traditional teaching don't challenge it. Mm-hmm. And I think this really is concept of, of changing a mental model of what instruction is and clearly defining a current state to a future state and creating a pathway to that state is the beginning of that agency that we were talking about without a clear vision for core instruction without clear markers and benchmarks to know whether we're making those transformations. Teachers will keep kind of cycling and trying and floundering because it's very, very risky to abandon practices that you feel are working for you for things that may actually work better. Mm -hmm. And it takes a lot of support and it takes instructional leadership. And we have not found this process take hold without a principal leading. Mm-hmm. So sort of cycling back a little bit to this idea of you know, changing the paradigm and the way that we're thinking about teaching and learning in the classroom. And you mentioned um, measurement. In, in what ways does that idea change too? How are we measuring things differently? Well, one the first thing that we institute whenever we work with the school through our schools for rigor process to do this is we will not bring in any additional student testing. In fact, our philosophy students are mostly being tested too much. And, but we want more assessment. So it sounds like a paradox, but it's not. We teach teachers how to examine live student evidence by walking the room mm-hmm listening to student conversations, checking their work, teaching students to use these strategies with each other. And the key piece here is that's very, very difficult to do if the teacher's doing all the talking. Students aren't really producing evidence that's visible. So to get students to produce visible evidence, you have to bring in group tasks. And then that, the teachers get really good at being able to predict. In fact, we have studies in our research center showing that teachers' judgment of student evidence to achieving the standards with a couple processes um, complementing that, actually a very high prediction of how students are testing in benchmark, interim, and state assessments. And we have to stop back and just think about this because I've had arguments with um, assessment officers, debates rather, Um, because it was kind of dismissed. Teachers can't make those judgments. They won't be accurate. Just look at the grading policies. Now grades don't reflect typically how students test. But we found the exact opposite, that when teachers are given the right tools and protocols, they can make those on-the-spot judgments very quickly, make adjustments within live instruction, 
and close the daily learning gap, which closes the achievement gap over time. The achievement gap is nothing more than a daily learning gap in lessons times time. So by moving to student evidence being a true predictor of how students will test, teachers know every day accurately how students are learning. They're not waiting for a test to figure that out. Mm -hmm. By putting that key fundamental assessment system, it's called technically short cycle to mid cycle to long cycle correlation. Whenever we do that, and it's typically missing off of every school, hundreds of schools that we've checked for these systems, the short cycle system's missing. Mm. Leaving teachers the tyranny of needing more testing to figure out how kids are learning. So it's really reimagining the the assessment process too. And, and it all goes together. Yeah, yeah all very much <laughs> intertwined. So let's loop back to, to uh, before that question, you mentioned the importance of instructional leadership and the importance, the strategic importance of the principal in this kinds of transformative work. What suggestions would you give those who are listening to this uh, who might be supervising principals uh, and coaching them in moving towards this kind of transformation? What suggestions would you have for us? Well, we do a lot of uh, principal supervisor work for uh, Wallace Foundation partners uh, around the principal supervisor initiative. Um, and what we found is the first thing that we work on is getting this vision of core instruction solidified because you can only lead to the limit of your vision. So if our vision is not consistent and it tends to devolve to what we know, then that's all we're going to get. So number one is we really solidify um, what the instructional vision should be, the state we want to lead to. And then we put in place what's different than the way we've been leading. What are you inspecting for? And we really teach principal supervisors how to visit schools accurately and consistently, looking for predictive metrics. In predictive indicators. In other words, when you walk a classroom, when you have this vision and you, we've created scientific tools around this, we literally can walk a school. We have a process called rigor walk where we visit random classrooms. Well, random is very important. It can't be the classrooms people want to show and tell. <laughs> that could be a true representation of instruction. And you spend no more than five minutes in a classroom. We map that and we can has very high prediction to how the, the students will test on a state assessment. Mm -hmm. And once people, uh, principal supervisors have a tool like that, all of a sudden their principal coaching goes to a whole nother level because it's now an evidence-based coaching cycle around a common vision for instruction. And what we've been lacking are tool sets for that. What we'll find is, is districts will create some sort of a school visit um, tool, but it's typically a mixture of what everybody thinks is good practice, uh, not a validated tool that gets this level of change. And that's one of the things I encourage you with is try to use research tools, have a solidified and written vision for instruction Ultimately, you can get greater alignment in a district by actually making that the mission vision statement for the district, but you don't have to go there right away. Mm -hmm. And certainly will take some time to evolve to that. 
Yeah, it all starts with us individually having a common understanding of what we're leading to versus just trying to lead improvement. Those are two very different things. Mm -hmm. One's going to make people work harder. One's going to make them work differently. Mm -hmm. So thank you for sharing um, some insights with your parable and connecting that with some of our challenges, instruction, um, assessment, the importance of our instructional leadership and building leaders. Um, There's a lot in that small resource that you have created. So what's next for you? What are you currently working on? Um, I'm writing another book, um, it's a considerable project. Uh, it puts all of this together into a systems view of whole school reform, going through the fundamentals of culture, systems around culture, systems around core instructions, systems around teacher collaboration, curriculum and assessment, and then how principals can use predictive leading data to lead their schools versus initiating programs and hoping that it changes lagging mm-hmm. data. That's typically where a school improvement model is now. So this is a passion of mine to try to get tools to make that process much more effective for principals and for teachers. Well, we will look forward to seeing that resource as well. So thank you so much for joining us this morning, Michael. Um, to learn more about Michael's work, you can visit his website, learningsciences.com, and check out the books and resources. Um, you can see the Who Moved My Standards and also some additional resources to supplement that um, initial text. Thank you so much. Each episode, we leave you with a question or two to think about with the idea of provoking some conversation. This episode's questions... What ideas did you connect with during today's conversation with Michael? And how can you support students and teachers during times of change? If you've enjoyed today's episode, would like to comment or just connect with the resources, check out the show notes at tltalkradio.org and look for season four, episode six. That's all for now. We'll be back soon featuring another innovative thought leader. Thanks again, Michael. Thanks, Michael. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.